Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, artists Sarah Light Waller and Mark Wheatley discuss artists who are bringing the flavor of the Pulp magazines into the 21st century. The talk was recorded on Saturday, August 6, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, we're here to talk about um, bringing pulp art into the 21st century. We're going to do a transition of... um, Mark and I are going to talk about what it's like bringing art from the old pulp days into new art and new pulp art, both of which are not quite the same thing. So... Um, maybe a little bit of introduction is needed, so I will start with you. Okay. Oh, tell me about yourself, Mark. <laughs> I thought you were going to introduce yourself. To I, me. <laughs> I will, but I'll let you go first. Um, yeah, I'm Mark Wheatley. I probably have run into me over the years. I've been coming to these things for a long time. Um, so yeah, I started out as a uh, art director in advertising and uh, pretty mundane stuff. Went into illustrating uh, comic books and books uh, working in New York City. Started a studio. Uh, we produced for comics uh, for many years, still do. Uh, I invented color production technology that was used by the industry for many years. Um, I've done art, writing, editing, publishing. Uh, I've hosted a radio show, I've won some awards, and, and I really like the pulps. I think it's the wellspring for most of what goes on in our modern culture. So. And I'm Sarlite Waller. Um, I'm a um, writer illustrator. I started um, actually in nonfiction publishing uh, back in the day. And um, then I started doing illustration for magazines and, um, and books, and I've been doing that for a couple of decades. And um, I've come to the pulps relatively recently, considering everybody here, so maybe 10 years. But I started reading Henry Kuttner and I just couldn't go back. And then I started looking at the pulp art and I realized it really could still speak to us today, even though perhaps some of the topics were not really relevant. But I wanted to learn it, and so that's what I've been doing recently. And I, you know, put out illustrated novelettes because that's fun. So that's us. And um, so what kind of art inspires you from the pulp era? Um, well, one of my earliest influences uh, in, in pulp uh, was Edgar Rice Burroughs, and um, therefore J. Allen St. John became the god artist for me. <laughs> And, uh, and this has been a particularly wonderful uh, convention because there's so much of his original artwork in the dealer's room. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I searched out a lot of pulps uh, for authors I wanted to read, uh, but also uh, J. Allen St. John covers and illustrations that probably occupied the first uh, decade of my pulp collecting, tracking that sort of stuff down. And uh, after that, uh, I, I was really always influenced by uh, Howard Pyle and the Brandywine illustrators. Mm. Um, uh, and so many of the early pulp artists uh, came from his school. Um, uh, and uh, if they didn't come from the school, they were second generation from the school. Or, I mean, almost everything traces back to Howard Pyle in this country for illustration. So, and you know. so um, I'm very influenced by um, Heath Robinson. I, he yeah. is, I consider his line work to be just pristine. Yeah. And, um, and also, I like H.J. Ford's work from the Colored Fairy books. Mm-hmm. That man worked fast. Mm-hmm. So you can tell by the line work, um, in order to make those marks, he had to work fast. So, um, yes, I appreciate Hal Pyle as well. Mm-hmm. His books are great. Well, Robinson kind of gave birth to a whole bunch of great artists, too. Yeah. Literally. Yes, yes, and maybe it was related to some of the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard it said, I don't, what do you think of this? I've heard it said that um, you can trace the comics through these Golden Age children's book illustrators coming out of those, that line work. Do you agree? Um, I think, and you've probably experienced this, as a commercial artist, uh, I've become the artist that I had commercial opportunities to become. 
Right, and you think they did too. Yes, so <laughs> if, if on Wednesday they were offered a chance to do a comic strip and on, they did it, and on Thursday they were offered a chance to do a children's book, they would do it. So You sound exactly like what I learned in the 80s from illustration school. That yeah. is exactly the advice yeah. that I got, yeah. And, and when we say pulp artists, mm -hmm. we're, it, it's, I mean, people were working, I mean, N.C. Wyatt started out working for Saturday Evening Post, but mm -hmm. he went on to do pulps after that. And it's, I think we've become uh, pretty rigid in our thinking about this, but uh, that line was crossed back and forth. It yeah. just meant you got paid more for one and, or had more time for another or something. Or something was color or something was ink. You're right. For, like Virgil Finley going back and forth with the comics. Oh, well, he was on staff for uh, Hearst Newspapers for many, many years just as a staff illustrator. So, yeah. It's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. You know, you do think about it kind of rigidly. You look at the pulp covers and you say, this person, like Rafael de Soto, I don't know what else he mm -hmm. did. But there he was doing all those wonderful paintings, mm -hmm. and I'm sure he had other gigs because yeah. that wouldn't have supported him. I think one of the things that uh, I know that I'm big, big, big influence from uh, N.C. Wyatt, mm -hmm. and at uh, the Brandywine Museum in the last decade, they've been X-raying a number of his paintings. Oh yeah. Uh, and discovering the missing paintings that have been published <laughs> that they could never find the originals for. He painted over them. And generally, they were for the lesser paying jobs. So his, um, there's one of the famous uh, Tarzan covers, the Return of Tarzan cover, the second uh, pulp cover that he did um, that has never been found. And uh, they believe it's probably under another one of his paintings because he didn't have to buy a new canvas. He and just gessoed over it and painted it again, which was a very standard process for anybody working in the pulps. And it was a standard process for any painter. My dad, um, he grew up in the Depression, so he was that era. And when he got older and had canvases, he painted over them all the time. He didn't even think about it, about buying new canvases. It was such an ingrained habit from the old days. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't know, do we do that still? Do we? Well, digital, I guess you don't <laughs> have to worry about it. Uh, I, I don't know. For me, I'm pretty OCD about making sure I keep everything as much as I can. I, we, we ran a studio for years, and one of the earliest uh, challenges... Uh, for reproduction before digital came along was keeping reproducible materials right. for books. So you would send out something to the printer, <laughs> the book would be published, and then, you know, five years later the publisher would come back and say, we want to do a new printing of this, and we didn't keep anything. Did you? And we did, but most artists wouldn't. And so I've gotten kind of a habit of making sure I document everything. And with digital, I've got it backed up, and I've got you know hard copies. I'm the and, same, and, actually. You know, you know. My first book, The Art, was lost by a publisher. Yeah. And that was not weird. That happened. Things happen. Things happen. You just have to be really flexible about it. Yeah, that's the cleaned up version of the slogan. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely true, and it, you do run into it. Yeah. Um, so... What what were your as you transitioned and be, went in as a new pulp artist as mm -hmm. you were moving into this? What were some of your goals? Were you trying to keep to the original feeling? Absolutely. Um, unless somebody's told me they wanted to modernize something, I feel like the stories were written in a particular time. So if I'm illustrating for Burroughs or if I'm illustrating Talbot Mundy or somebody like that, I look to the history of the moment when that was written. I try to do a lot of research um, for uh, what was being illustrated, the style of illustration at the time, but most importantly, when I actually go to draw the finished piece, I'd like to study as much film footage as I can find mm -hmm. from the period, I because people have an entirely different body language yep. from the teens and the 20s uh, than we do now because we're very conscious of film and we tend to present ourselves mm -hmm. when we have a camera directed at us. Where back then people didn't understand that their souls were being stolen and right. they were they would just you know be very natural and. Um, but builds are different too. Hairstyles are different. Body. Oh, absolutely. The way you carry yeah, your yeah, body is yeah, different. Yeah. All of this is. Mm -hmm. I find that as well. I look at a lot of old movies and mm -hmm. old stills and haircuts. My goodness, mm -hmm. getting the haircut right, you have to. 
And, and, and a lot of people have a hard time drawing hats now because people don't wear them much. I know. And they, and they just don't get, they don't know how to sit it on a head. So, Which yeah. is nice if you have a vintage hat collection yeah. or you know other people <laughs> yes, who do. Yes. Yes. I'm guessing you have a vintage hat collection. I do, and yeah, I, know, yeah. I know a fellow who collects fedoras and buys new ones and is very stylish about it. So if mm. a worst came scenario, I could call him up for yeah. a model. But it's hard you to get models today. I, do you use live models? It's too hard. Uh, when I had hard. the studio, it was easy because I could go to the studio next door and I could say, "Here, hold this gun." <laughs> and that's that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. in the back in the day, you they did hire models when they got their friends in there to make funny faces. All those Western magazines that you mm -hmm. see the covers and mm -hmm. you know they're just their friend from next door. Yeah, I I do know that the solution now though is this. Yes. Uh, I need a gun. I'm I'm actually on the cover of uh, my new book. There's a woman in a head cloth way in the back. That's yeah. me yeah. <laughs> in the bathroom mirror going. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. But then you transitioned into you. You know, obviously, um, an artist's work grows, and so you you went from that. Are you still as trying to be as literal today? Um, I think uh, I've become a very pulp-influenced artist. The more opportunities I've had to do pulp illustration work, the more my style has coalesced around that. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And uh, so I have a certain line art style that people really pick up on uh, that is influenced by people like Joseph Clement Call and Dan Smith and uh, J. Allen St. John and, and a lot of the line artists are, and, and I use that as the basis for a lot of my pulp paintings as well because um, well because people seem to like it and uh, it's an easy way for me to work. Recently though I've started work uh, on some projects that are definitely not pulp and I've had to really stretch my wings a little bit to get oh. you know loosen up and, and go back to some other things but we're shaped by both the things we do and the things we try to express so right yeah. I mean I yeah. I come from a real um, I was doing a lot of portraiture for on people and animals for years and really photorealistic stuff because that's what people really like and so I had to really loosen up when I started doing pulp paintings I'm still working on it those broad strokes that you expect to see because they worked fast and it was it's hard to go backwards and say I need a brush stroke that's this big that shows a shadow or a a highlight or something. Um, but that is a fairly typical approach. I mean, yeah. if you look at a pulp painting, and certainly the way they painted, and it all tends to come from folks like um, Harvey Dunn and, and, and Dean Cornwall and mm -hmm. all those guys. Who were super. They would, they would do one stroke. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like searching for that stroke. Uh -huh. It was like, all right. And, and I've, I've seen a, a, a film of... Um, of Harvey Dunn working, where he mixed a certain amount of paint on his brush and it spent a lot of time mm -hmm. on the palette. And then he went up to the painting, he stood in front of it, bop. And then he started mixing paint for the next thing. And all he did was that one, it wasn't a search to find that, it was just that, and he made it with the right kind of brush. He got a wedge image, a wedge shape that, I mean, it was. Yeah. Who, who so, said that they weren't doing fine art? I mean, that's really Oh, no, there's really no difference. It's just how much you got paid for the work. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, and that's, they had such, uh, such short deadlines. I think that we have better deadlines today. Really? Do you think? No, I don't think so. Really? How, I don't know how no. long they gave them for those covers. Uh, pulp was you worked as fast as you could because you needed the money because That's the rates were low. Right. But still, I bet they had more time than we do today. You think? Yeah, I, because I, I have to turn out, to make it even begin to pay, I have to turn out a cover painting inside three days. And that's from, and that's sure from that research that. to finish. Wow. Um, and if I don't do that, it's because I've decided I want it to look better than how much they're paying. <laughs> I didn't know that you had to work that fast, yeah. honestly. Um, but, you know, somebody like Wyeth, oh. he'd have a month 
yeah. it, it easily and a budget that would have allowed him maybe to travel to the location he wanted to include. Rockwell might have had more time too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. oh, absolutely, absolutely. They had the ability to do multiple roughs and present them yeah. to a client. Mm -hmm. uh, my clients today can't afford roughs. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. So how does, how does the speed, knowing that the client is going to want quality, and yet, given these incredibly short deadlines, how do you cope with that? Um, you know, you use every crutch in the book. I mean, the, <laughs> you, you take photographs where you can for reference. You, I have, I have a personal file of reference photographs. There's probably tens of thousands of mm -hmm. photos, um, and. It really helps that I'm working in subject matter that has not that I've already done before. So right. I have that material. I have a collection of guns, either real ones or plastic ones that resemble the ones that are needed. Uh, <laughs> swords, you know, helmets. I've got Gray Mara's hat collection. You know, I inherited that from Gray. Um, so yeah, I mean, just use what you've got. Anything to get through. And you've got to be able to draw. I mean, I draw sketch all the time. And, you know, so you transition to, for your color work, you're doing all digital now. Other than after the sketches. Yeah, I mean, if, if I need a certain texture, I'll go over and I'll smear some paint on the <laughs> sheet and scan it, and then I'll use that texture in what I'm doing. But most of the painting work is actually done digitally, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I work more by hand, and um, I do some digital, but not very much, so... So that's kind of that's kind of different. I'm, and it takes longer, quite honestly. Although I will do some pen and ink work online. I on digital. Well, uh, and all my pen and ink work and brush work is still done on paper with real ink. Yeah. So yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I I I do um, music recording as well, mm. um, and uh, I er learned early on with the advent of electronic music that if you could include a single real instrument in the mix. Oh. The sonics would broaden all of the fake sounds enough that the ear could be fooled into thinking oh, that there was, you yeah. were hearing real orchestrations. And I kind of use the same philosophy with digital art. As long as you can create some sort of real element, the line artwork or mm -hmm. something, it, it tends to elevate it to a level of uh, believability that it's you know, got more detail and texture. I've seen some of your drawing or paintings that had, I think they had some, you had a show at Pulp Fest a few yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And some of those pieces, didn't they have um, non-digital elements to them? They did. Yeah, That's what you right. were seeing was the line art and then you were seeing the printout right. of the digital piece. Yeah, yeah. very nice. I mean, really that was the uh, uh, Swords Against the Moon Men I illustrated for the Burroughs Company uh, that Christopher Paul Carey wrote. And it was pretty much his audition to become the head of that company. <laughs> right, that's right. I remember that. I do. Um, what? What's? So let's talk a little bit about this. The surprises of the industry today, um, things that get in our way and um, that shouldn't. But do you like the paper issues and um, issues and things? Well, I mean, art supplies are really hard to get. Mm -hmm. You know, consistent. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, if you do like to work in pen and ink, I have to get my ink from Japan because the ink over here is actually acrylic paint that's been watered down and, and it's not really India ink. Mm -hmm. um, brushes I get from Japan because I don't, I, you know, Windsor Newton brush is the best thing in the world, but I don't like to dip a brush so I get, yeah, so it's, it's art supplies. Uh, paper, paper quality. Uh, any artist working on a sheet of paper these days will tell you that the, this batch was great, and then the next one that's the same brand, it, it everything blotches and spreads. But what I did find is that um, because they cost so much money, color copiers, color mm -hmm. digital printers, um, require a very rigid standard for their papers. Mm -hmm. And so I've been buying reams of 100 pound uh, uh, paper that are used in digital printing uh, machines mm -hmm. um, and you can get that for three cents a piece and instead of you know ten dollars a sheet and uh, it, the quality never wavers it's always very good. Well I, f I found that actually with getting some things color co I, I didn't want to get some color copies made for some art purposes 
And I thought, well, I have to. I'm on a, on a tight deadline. But the quality was really good. Oh, it's really I was good. very surprised. Yeah. I, I ran into um, an issue with getting paint. I, I was shocked. There was a color very... I don't remember which one it was, but there was a, a color of acrylic that I, they couldn't get in. I was shocked. I've never run into that in my life. But this, it seems like this is going to be an issue going forward. Yes. So this is, this is a big problem. And also, and I, I need to warn you, if I like a pen, they'll stop making it. Well, I understand that. I, I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's... When I, when I came up with the palette that I've started using for painting, like 1930s pulp style, mm -hmm. um, there were a couple of colors in there that got a little iffy. I was like, no, you can't do that to me. You cannot. I, I refuse to accept that reality. Yeah. Um, but now, do you do your own scanning when you do a piece? I do. I, I do. I used to... Um, work in a photography lab too so I'll do big flat photographs and correct them now we don't have to do um, hand retouching which mm -hmm. is lovely yeah. on negatives and on prints boy that was mm -hmm. it's much easier with Photoshop yes so I'll do all of that and then um, and I keep a lot of copies too in a lot of different places mm -hmm. um, and then just punch them up with the black and white or the color a little bit to try to because sometimes it won't reproduce, as you know, it won't reproduce right if you've got it in the wrong register, if it's RGB and it's not, it's GB, S, oh, absolutely. C, Y, M, K. And printers are all over the map these days, whether they want CMYK or RGB. Or, I know. Yeah. I just automatically would send them CMYK and they'd yeah, say, they, no, I want RGB. Yeah, right. Do you guys know what that is? <laughs> We're, we just slipped into alien tongues, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, uh, if you don't know, uh, CMYK is uh, uh, short letters for color names, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And um, that's a four color press that would normally print most things you see. Uh, and RGB is how things are projected on a uh, computer screen, television, television screen, whatever. Yeah. And uh, the difference though is that RGB is a uh, subtractive projection right. system. So if you mix all the colors, it's white. It's white. But if you mix all the inks, that's an additive and they're black. So uh, you have to understand that it works differently when you're mixing in the two different forms. And we don't so. have color separations, physical color separations anymore for printing because it's digital. Right, and if you're proofing on an uncalibrated monitor, it means nothing. Right, right. So, so, so we're going through this process pre-press, pre-pre-press, because it's uh, before we send it in to whoever's going to print it, we have to get it to a certain level, and then we send it to the printer or the editor, whoever is in that process, and then they have to get it to where it's printable, and they always monkey around with it too. Are you having trouble getting proofs back? Like, are, are they complaining that they can't... Well, a proof is just a PDF these days. Right. So, I mean... But, but the, you bring up an interesting point, because in the original pulp situation, the artist's only responsibility was to deliver that painting. Right. And now it's our responsibility to not only deliver the painting, but to make sure it's already correct Col for the proof. When I send it in... And high and, quality. It's got to be as high quality oh, yeah. as possible. I always exceed, because if, yeah. I, if, they, if they say, oh, we only need 300 DPI, you don't Garbage. have to do any more... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm working. I mean, okay, so do a cover like this, to do a print size, they only wanted it 300. But huh. the actual piece that I did, oh, well, it's probably from here, maybe, you know, way, way up over here, you know, and if somebody wanted to do a print for the back of here, it would look just fine because that's how big it is. Mm -hmm. And the now, reason I do that is... It's, that's digitally. Well, it's... Yes, it could. It's it pixel be. dimensions. Pixel dimensions. But the the thing of it is, though, is that I can't get the subtlety of tonal shift and and color uh, shift in something that's done small. Right. But also, I guarantee you, two years from now, they're going to want it at five hundred. Sure. And if they come back and want to reprint it, I don't want to have to redo it. <laughs> and I, that makes perfect sense because they will come back, and then you can't yeah. you can't go up. As yeah. you probably know, with pixels, you have to go down. Well, there are AI programs know, that are doing I've, a remarkable job these days. I know. I've started days. looking at those for you know, photographs. Yeah. I can, I can six, I can multiply some some things up to six times larger now, 
and you can't help. That's good to know for the future. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have my things I send a printer at least 600. Deep. I mean, I, I won't do 300 because it'll be a problem yeah. later. It just will. So, but yeah, I mean, I when I started, um, we did it all. We took it to press. We did the separations. And we did the photographs. We did the separations. We made sure they register. People don't, you know, you still have printer's marks available when you, when you send something to a printer, but they may or may not need them. I, most of the printers I work with specifically request do not put marks. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a new thing. That was never... So marks would be for trimming the... the uh, and bleed. The, the, so you have to extend the art beyond the edge when you're printing. So it can be trimmed off and it'll go up to the edge and look fine. And we have to just now provide a certain amount of slop over mm -hmm. and they will decide where they're going to do that. So. And then they sometimes they mess up on the first go. Sometimes. Sometimes that sometimes happens. Sometimes they do. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's easier to correct these oh. days. Yes, right? much easier. Yeah. yeah, much easier. The, I find that color is still an issue though. And I don't know if you found this, you probably have a better printer than I do, but um, you have to be really careful. Sometimes they don't want to have a discussion with you when you get the proof back and you don't like the color. You um, probably have a better printer than I've used, but uh, you haven't had I don't one. know. I just, <laughs> I just do what I need to do. Okay. Sometimes you also have to just resolve that you're, you're, you have to accept what they've done. Like e-books. Like putting, like putting artwork in e-books, you yeah. cannot place it. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, your layout choices are extremely limited. Very, very limited. When, we were, when uh, the original magazines and pulse were being printed, uh, layout and design was something Physical that could, could be really uh, intricate and very precise. Uh, E-books now, I mean, they're more interested in maybe locking an illustration to a certain place in yeah. the text, so when it reflows, it'll always stay in a certain position. But if you want it to look good on the page, forget it. Yeah. It I, I was in a seminar uh, that somebody was saying about ebooks. You just have to give it up. Just give it up. Put it basically where you want it and just don't fuss anymore. If you're going to want to fuss, do it with the print book. Yeah. So, yeah. So they've essentially dumped. I mean, this is turning into a little bit of a bitch fest on modern technology, isn't it? But I know. It really is, isn't it? I didn't intend for that. We could change uh, it over. Yeah, yeah. I think we should probably get back more oh, let, to the soul of the Okay. So. so um, <laughs> So, you were a new pulp artist at one point. Yes, I was. And um, and I'm a fairly new pulp artist now. And we're we're um, our our audience are people who are very experienced with the traditional forms of pulp. So, how have you found the best way to introduce yourself and grow? And I mean, you you've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, when I first started, I think I was too young to impress the older members of the crowd, but now I'm one of them. Oh. I got older. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, this, is off, this is completely off script, but I'm curious. You know, we all have these, these fantasies about going back and talking to some of these pulp authors or buying things at the newsstand that mm. suddenly came out with a big, sh I have a big shopping bag fantasy, mm. you know, pro mm. appropriate money and everything, but, um, yeah, cause the first you have to go back in time <laughs> yeah, and you have to take money that they you can only, buy. you have to go back only 10 years at a time because if you go back too far, your money wouldn't be transferable. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah I have, I've thought this uh, through. See, we, this is great. Yeah. But so if you, if you were in a, um, if you went to one of the studios that had a bunch of the pulp artists working together, um, what would you ask them? Or would you ask them anything? Well, I would just want to sit and watch. That's what I would do. I mean, when I had that's my exactly studio, what that's do. what I did with all the guys who worked with us, is I would love to watch them, and I've learned so much from them. Every, every artist knows something I don't, and mm -hmm. I want to learn it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would do the same. I, yeah. I think... Um, I would ask them, I would look very closely at their palettes though, because to get the painting right, you really have to, you can't just go off half-cocked and start doing a palette that they never used and wouldn't, I mean, it changed over time, but I mean, that's just, that's kind of a thing. For I've me. always thought that uh, tones are better, are more important than color. Mm. Uh, if you get the tones right, the colors will take care of themselves. Uh, color sense is a, one of those things 
I had so many artists that I've trained over the years in my studio. I could train them to draw. I could train them to draw better. Mm -hmm. I could train composition, all, all those things. One thing I could never train, if you don't have an innate sense of color, I just could not communicate. So you would, you would install, make sure that they understood the value scales really right, strongly. Exactly, yes. And then, yeah. see, I think that, um, I like working with limited palettes because if you get too confusing, you've got a whole, too much, right. it's too much. Yeah. And, it, and it, they didn't use, every, well, unless you were a pastel artist, like Modest Stein, mm -hmm. and then you would have a lot of different colors mm -hmm. to create something. So, um, so here, here you are, mm. and you've gotten to be one, the old, one of the old guys. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> How's it different? Um, well, I know everybody. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't know. I come to these things, and it's just a room full of my friends. But uh, I, I guess the major difference is, is that I remember my first PulpCon where I brought out my first uh, spider uh, graphic novel, uh, which was part of Titanic Tales. And I got a lot of attention at my booth, my table, um, because people would see Titanic Tales sitting on the table. And we had put our due diligence in, and that book looked like a pulp. And it was a stack of them sitting on the table, and everybody circling around and around looking for the pulps they needed saw it. And they would come over and they'd grab it, and they'd go, oh, it's new. <laughs> and they'd put it back, and they'd keep circling. So we had done the job of getting their attention and making it look right. But the one thing you can't solve is that the people weren't looking for something new. They were looking for the old pulps. Well, now the pulps have become so hard to find and they're expensive that I think we finally have a good market for all of the publishers who are bringing out new pulp. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nice change. That uh, I think that's the most hope we have for taking the, uh, the aesthetics of pulp, the, the culture of pulp into the future. Mm -hmm. you know, is that you know you have to have that vitality of new creation, or it just dies. So. And I think that um, we're also, in a in a way, setting a standard for the future. You know, I mean, the the fact that now digital art is available. So going forward, digital art with new pulp, digital art becomes canon in a way that it it wasn't. You know? mm. And who knows what the next step will be. Holographic, you know? I mean, who knows? Whatever is easy. That's Paul. Yeah, right? that's right. That's Paul. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's the answer for that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the holograms will be for the slicks and the. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. Are we still crossing? Well, of course we are. We're still crossing over. Your crossover between pulps and all sorts oh, sure. of other I, things. I think the mainstream culture today is pulp. Yeah. I suppose that's true. I think the personality of pulp is a very direct marketing thing that's an unashamed built-in marketing sense. Um, if you look at the early pulps, and I think this is seen everywhere we are today, you know, it would be, here's your story, read it, and by the way, next issue, mm -hmm. <laughs> come and buy it. I mean, everything is about selling the next piece today, everything, everywhere. You know, so. here's, here's a question. I've, I've not thought about this because it's never come up for me, ever. Um, in the pulp days, they would often have the art first and then tell the writers still to write. Happens. Still Does happens. Does it? Because I've, I've never run into that. Yeah, it still happens. Well, it depends. If you come up, if I walk in with a piece of art that I've generated myself and somebody sees it and goes, oh my God, this is great. I got to use this. Well, the art, the art sells the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. it, it also helps if you've got a name of an author somebody really likes on the book. But if you've got a piece of art that uh, uh, is appealing, then you've already got the hardest part out of the way. Right. And then it's up to somebody to write a story. Now, it would be really good if they write an incredible story. Right. But sales are already made before you find that out. <laughs> right, right. So. Now... I know there were trends in fantasy recently, and probably continuing, where, you know, at the moment, there's a trend, you need to have a dragon on the cover, or it needs to be yellow, or it needs to have a house, right. or it yeah. needs... I've not run into that in pulp, have you? Um, well, I mean, there's genre stuff, you know, you're going to have a detective cover that looks like... I probably self-limit 
because uh, if someone, if a publisher comes to me and says I'm doing a science fiction cover and it's, it's well, I mean I've done this like for Meteor House. They they were extending a uh, a, a Philip Jose Farmer series, and uh, so I thought I had to do something evocative of the previous books. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, I mean it, uh, we just did this thing for uh, Flinch. Uh, which is very well received, uh, uh, flashing swords, and um, uh, it's a sword and sorcery cover, and there are just some things that had to be on the cover. Uh, it has to be a guy, you know, who's a barbarian-esque sort of warrior with a sword. Absolutely. Um, now, if we were doing a true pulp cover, there would be some damsel in distress, but modern sensibilities say, no, we're not going there. <laughs> well, and that's, this is a good, this is really a good place to go from mm -hmm. here because yeah. we have, they had constraints in the pulp era that we don't have and we have constraints, a lot of constraints that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. So we have to do a lot of self-centering, censoring about what could be on the cover. Um, well, we have to find new avenues. Right. It's still storytelling. Yeah, yeah. You know, but... Um, and in some ways, it just keeps us from being repetitious. Well, that's true. <laughs> Except pulp stuff is repetitious. Well, there's not that much of it being produced these days. So well, I think we can avoid it easier than that's they That's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, if it was true pulp, they would take my painting and just reverse it and print it on another title. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, and then there's the copies. Yeah. that another publisher might do. Oh, yeah, on... sure, sure. In yeah. fact, didn't we see one of those last night? Someone was showing us. Oh, it was the comics. It yeah. was It was taking um, a, two comics had a, the same art. It's just one had been changed from dog fighting to um, uh, flying saucers. Yeah. Same art. And I guess we're still seeing that. Well, when we did Johnny Quest for, uh, I don't know, two or three years, whatever it was, um, we had an unusual contract in that we owned the rights to reproduce the artwork. That's fantastic. But we didn't own the rights to the trademark characters. So you could do the backgrounds? So Dr. Quest became uh, Dr. Cyborg, and he got a beard, right? And Johnny uh, became... Um, uh, a little black-haired guy rather than a blonde-haired guy. And, and Haji? Haji became a Native American girl. Oh, wow. Okay. All, all very easy fixes, by the way, because the, we didn't have to redraw any figures, just blacken Johnny's hair and, <laughs> wow. and take the turban take off the of turban and, off put, Haji, a, and yeah. put, like, you know, braided black hair on her. So, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a something... It's the economics, and pulp has always been always. very economically driven. Yeah, and so, how to do yeah. it cheapest yeah. and fastest. Yeah. I know that they reused a lot of the art in the pulp era, and I'm sure, are you, do you have, you probably just, uh, you don't have a lot of art in reserve that didn't get bought or that you keep and maybe would sell later. I, uh, my dirty little secret is I do this stuff even when I'm out getting paid. So yeah, I have a lot of stuff that I just keep doing. Yeah, I think that's, I think we all do yeah. stuff that just didn't quite make the cut and then, um, but you might be able to reuse it. Well, um, I'm, it's not that it didn't make the cut. I mean, I did come up with a lot of stuff and there's just no market for it. There's just oh, no place for yeah. it to go. Yeah. And uh, I've got a project I'm planning for next summer, which is a revival of my fanzine, which is going to be a repository for a lot of these stories. I mean, I wrote a, a really... One of my favorite things is called Broken Knife is a uh, multiple alternate world story. Mm. And uh, it was done for um, an online site that was uh, one of the major science fiction publishers and they were putting new fiction online as a way to get people to come to their online store. Mm -hmm. And uh, about the time, of course, mine was gone in, they decided to stop doing that. Of <laughs> so, course, so, yeah. so now I've got this thing that was written specifically to certain lengths for a certain thing. And, oh, oh, it must be time for happy hour. Um, <laughs> um, the slides are ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, 
So uh, I've, I've lost my train of thought. Well, you had, you, you, pro you produced this multiple word story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and now, now, you've now so I've got, a, I've got so many things I've done like this over the years I've been working that have just been waiting to find a home. And so uh, they're actually, I consider them some of my very best work. And they've just been sitting there, little gems waiting to find a home. And so I'm going to be pulling them all together and using them in, uh, in my fanzines, which really isn't a fanzine anymore, but because uh, I'm not a fan. Well, I am a fan. You are a fan. But I'm a professional fan. That's right. Point, so, yeah. And now it's, uh, we have a lot more um, opportunities to reach people today. I mean, there's all the online things, but there's also Kickstarters. And many artists have found this to be a very successful way to market new, new works. And what's been your experience with Kickstarters? Um, well, I, one of my old assistants put it really well. He said, okay, so let me get this straight. Now, I not only have to write and draw and figure out how to publish and distribute, but I also have to become a 24-hour-a-day marketer on social media <laughs> and an accomplished video uh, presenter and uh and and then i can actually sell my book and that's that's what we do but it works and it's an opportunity and so yeah i mean i've had mm, i think four successful kickstarters at this point the really great thing is if you're really good with your people who support you on Kickstarter, they come back and support you again and again, and your, your, your base grows each time. Um, they just need the confidence that you actually deliver because unfortunately, as you probably, if you've ever worked with Kickstarter, you'll find eventually somebody won't deliver. Um, but um, yeah, I, I've done... Um, I did this. Oh, well, okay. I did. Uh, I did the Songs of Giants book, which was a collection of poetry from uh, the pulps that I got to illustrate with, um, you know, lots of really elaborate uh, illustrations, and it was very successful. Uh, I was really blown away by how well that did. And I just did the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, Visions of Adventure portfolio, which, uh, because of the support I've had over the years. My backers made this hit its goal in the first six hours of a month-long campaign. That's fantastic. I had, because I didn't want to delay delivery, I had already sent the folder out for die cut and print. Uh, so I was committed to the folder. And so when we had so many stretch goals and we hit 16 prints, I had to start getting clever for more stretch goals because the thing physically would not hold more than 16. I was originally planning only eight prints. <laughs> um, but I mean, we, it, it, it's really cool because like with this book, I was able to offer a audio book version along with it that is just almost better than the book. I, uh, the, the Redfield Arts Company that's set up in the room do amazing work and the readings of these poems will send shivers up your spine, I guarantee it. Um, and, and that comes with the book. Um, and yeah, little extras like, I mean, I did all sorts of little extras on this that uh, I could never do if I was working for a commercial publisher. The fact that it's a die cut folder for one, <laughs> nobody would have gone for that. They'd have found the cheaper way. They would put it in an envelope and just, you know, mm -hmm. say, yeah, this is stuff. I mean, I got, I got to put a metallic print, fifth ink on the cover of this. I was looking at that. Yeah, That's that, not cheap. Yeah, but it's a stretch goal. Yeah, that's they, right. They said, yeah, let's, let's, let's go for that. I was able to put a cloth uh, bookmark in here, a ribbon bookmark. I've never had that in one of my books before. So it's, it's really cool. I really enjoy working with it. Well, and, so. and again, that's something that, um, as you mentioned, a publisher might not go for some of those things. In the old yeah. days, they, they couldn't have afforded to do it. Right. And the audio book option is a very modern option. And it's, uh, well, there was radio, but you wouldn't have had a pulp package of with the radio, anything, I don't Well, know. it just worked, the dynamics worked differently, they right? Did. I mean, the they shadow did. came out of the radio show. Right, Yeah. right, and well, you see it with Flash Gordon, you mm -hmm. see it with all sorts yeah. of things, yeah. but we have an opportunity to package it together. Mm -hmm. So that's something that for us in the 21st century is like really cool. You can have the digital, you can have the audio, you can have the print stuff if you want it. And um, I guess it's part, we have to figure out as artists what the trend at the moment is that's coolest that the, the, 
the readers or listeners would want? I don't try. You don't try? No. So here's, here's the story about this. Poetry. Oh, there's a big market, right? Poetry, right? But, but I Some really... Some people would think so. I really loved... Well, okay, so this was like five years ago. And uh-huh. I'm sitting there thinking, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to collect poetry from Robert E. Howard, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and H.P. Lovecraft and illustrate it into a book. Well, I'm going to lose my shirt on that, but I'm going to go ahead and do uh-huh. it. And so I did. I invested two years in illustrating the book, putting it together, and I launched the Kickstarter pretty much like the month before I launched the Kickstarter Poetry started showing up on the New York Times bestseller list as the hottest thing in the market, That's right? Fantastic. And so I started getting calls from publishers going, Could you advise us? You obviously have your finger on the pulse of the publishing industry. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's great. I mean, Kickstarter came to me and said, We love that you're on the vanguard of our new successful publishing of you know, poetry. It's been so successful and you picked up on it so quickly. Yeah, right. And you and you absolutely agreed with everything they said. Yeah, yes, it was a great I, idea. I'm there so have been times in my career where I've done that, but here it was like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not really looking to be a consultant at this point. But yeah. Well, the consultants pay a lot. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I know a guy who retired on it. He he uh, he he worked for MCI, and uh, his supervisor upset him so much that he put in for early retirement and cashed out cashed out all his stocks. And one month late, 90 days later, MCI went. Oh, good timing. He, for the next 15 years, he advised other companies because he got pegged as the one guy who could <laughs> see it coming. And the only reason he left is because his supervisor was such an asshole. Wow. Yeah, but he made a huge career out of being a, you know, a consultant because of that. So it's, you know. Well, you said something to me the other day about. Um, you know, if you're in this long enough, you find yourself in the right place in the road. That's not a direct quote, but it's close. Yeah, I said it. If you stand in the road long enough, a truck will hit you. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you said. But I mean, is advice for I don't know if there's any artists in the room, but in advice for artists going forward, you got to stay in the center of the road. Yeah. So what that really means is, is that if you keep going for what you think is hot now. You will never get there because what's hot now won't be there when you get there. Five minutes. If you stay in one place and you're completely devoted to what you're doing, you have your best chance of eventually the attention of society landing on your spot at some point. But if you keep moving, yeah, you're both going to miss it and you'll... Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, because you get known for the thing that somebody will eventually need. Right. And um, I have an, a non-pulp story and <laughs> for that that came to me recently. I've done a number of... Are we done? Okay. Um, this is really quick. I, I do a lot of children's book work, and I do coloring books, and I've done a, a whole bunch of those. And so um, I was at a meeting where a new coloring book for a, an event was being considered by a town, and they, they were looking at another coloring book uh, in another town locally, and they said, we need to get in touch with this person who did this other coloring book. And I just sat there and went, and they said, yeah, we really need to get in touch with this person. I'm like, it was me. I just talk to me. You know, and, and so um, part of what I've gotten a reputation for is to doing historical coloring books because you start doing them, and then suddenly everybody is looking to who did that one. You know, and, and I didn't intend to be in that market, but there it is. And it actually is a market. This is where we started. You're shaped by what opportunities you're given. Yeah. Mm. And I end up with um, these coloring books are historical local events. And so they get taught in schools as teaching tools. And suddenly, you know, I'm like, well, I'm trying to do something else, but okay. That <laughs> means in 20 years, you're going to have a great market. Yeah, I know. All those kids are going to be going, oh, I wish she'd do some more stuff. I know. And you've got to take it because as an illustrator, that's your job. It's, yeah. it's come up. Yeah. Yay, I'll, I'll, I'm good. Yeah. Hire me. Yeah. And, and along those lines, I've gotten known for some things that I very actively resisted and got away from. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I can't put my finger on it right now because I put them out of my mind. But I know there have been points where I've said, oh, no, everybody's coming to me for this. Oh, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, the coloring book thing is that yeah. for me. Yeah. But I think we should open it up for a few minutes of questions. Um, does anybody have any questions? Everyone's no. still awake, I hope? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a question. Yes, yes. sir. Hey, Mark. Uh, nice presentation. I really liked it. 
So if you're a young artist today who dug a digital for painting and you love folds and you want to continue doing that, where is your market? Who do you talk to? Well, um, this room over here is full of new pulp publishers. Uh, Meteor House, uh, Flinch, um, uh, 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 Airship 27. Uh, I, I, I don't even know personally some of them, but you can just walk around and see them sitting on the tables there. A lot of good new books being done. Uh, it's a, actually a pretty exciting time for, for pulp. Yeah, no. Yeah, and then the truth is, is a lot of these publishers are not in a position to really put much of a budget into designing their books. And there are a lot of publishers out there who are doing, I think, very good written material that don't have a good grasp of the visual. Mm -hmm. And and uh, an enterprising young artist might be able to sell themselves to those folks if they're uh, able to get on the right wavelength. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. so. And don't forget, there's this is again a problem for pay, but there's a whole lot of new pulp individuals putting out books. And so if you're an artist and you feel like you want to get in touch with them, they probably don't have much of a budget, but um, I don't know. I think it's possible that trades could be done. And, and going forward, you know, there's always that possibility somebody has a, a way to trade with you to get started in the field. It's not great, but it's, it's feasible. And, and if you're trying to do covers in the pulp industry, you need to understand this is going to be some, some fragment of your total mm -hmm. uh, uh, design for your, for your career because yeah. there, there's not enough here to, to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I make my money from TV and motion pictures these days, mostly not in publishing at all. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm an editor part-time too, so. Any other questions? Well, thank you all for coming. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a pulp event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.